Good morning, y'all. Uh, welcome to week seven of our Love Thy Neighbor class, focusing on the topic of race in American society and in the American church. So I'm going to be out of town next week for our last class. So today is, for all intents and purposes, my last class. Uh, and so there are a few things that I have wanted to tell you over the course of the past six weeks that I will tell you now. So first, a recap, uh, and then we'll, then we'll get into it. So I want to begin with um, Hebrews 10.24. And so the author of Hebrews has just outlined the fact that we have confidence to enter the holy places because of Christ's blood, and that he has saved us through his purity. And he encourages his hearers, saying, let us, con- let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up one another. Stimulate one another. Agitate one another. That is the work that Slim and I have tried to do here. Not merely agitation for the sake of agitation, because that's worthless. Rather, this is the kind of agitation that we think that the Lord would have us do. And so we spent this first week, we spent the first week of the class with Slim explaining why we need, why we need to talk about these things. He outlined the doctrine of the spirituality of the church, where the, it, was a, it was a particular doctrinal framing that encouraged primarily Southern Presbyterians, but it extended to Baptists and Methodists and others, to see the church as a body in which you discuss spiritual issues as opposed to social and economic issues and things like that. Now, looking back in hindsight, this was a theological wall that was set up to avoid seriously struggling with the injustice of, of African slavery. But the language has been rehashed and reused even up, even up to this day. And such a sentiment that the gospel, that is union with Christ, only has necessary effects upon the spiritual life of the Christian, or that it only has necessary claims on the... Or, or, or that it only has necessary claims on the spiritual life of the Christian, that, 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 that way of thinking is detrimental to the holistic work of Jesus Christ. And so for, uh, for more on that, if you're interested in that topic, the issue of what do we say about this thing that people call social justice, law and gospel, structural and corporate sin, all these things. Uh, a close friend of mine and I, uh, friends doing a, a, a PhD at Yale, this past week we... Uh, wrote kind of an extensive, an extensive blog post that was picked up on mirrororthodoxy.com. If you want to know more about that, check that out. We've, we've laid kind of all of our theological cards bare there. So we then, we, we, we then moved into history. I attempted to bring us from slavery to the present, outlining the ways in which this created thing called race has been used to oppress and to keep people in bondage. It began with slavery and the, dis- and the distinctly American process of racializing it with the narratives that Africans needed to be in slavery, that it was good for them, that it would civilize them, that it would Christianize them. This offered the ideological ballast to continue an unjust structure that was necessary to maintain a certain amount of economic security in, in the nation. And when that particular institution, or as it was called, the peculiar institution, was done away with, and it didn't fall, I mean, it was, it was torn out from under southern planters, and, 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 and for good reason, but other institutions and structures took its place. The economic systems of sharecropping and convict leasing kept many black people in conditions comparable to, and in some ways worse, th- than slavery. 
What was a decade of hope immediately after the Civil War was eroded and crushed over the next 50 years especially through, through lynching, through the extension of Jim Crow legislation, and others. Now, after lynching faded, and you have the New Deal following the Depression, even here, black people were overlooked and, uh, and oppressed. The New Deal did not address populations who took menial jobs, the, even people who took those jobs because they had to, and this disadvantaged many black families. As we discussed with redlining, black neighborhoods were deemed unfit for investment purely because black people were living there. Neighborhoods would then lose property values when, when, when black families moved in, and so as a way to keep property values high, and ultimately arbitrary measure, but one tied up with what people considered to be the American dream. So people would then police their own neighborhoods and keep certain people out, creating racial housing covenants and the like to keep their communities pure. All of these factors and more lead to and ultimately undermine this, this narrative that we like to tell ourselves that, that, that equal opportunity is a thing and divergence of circumstances is purely an effective individual choice. Now, as we, after we moved through history, we started to get to discussing today. We talked about some topics of, of mass incarceration and, and work discrimination, housing discrimination, and so on. And that's when things started to get more uncomfortable, as we started to think, okay, am I participating in this? What do I, what do? I do? And so one of, one of the things that we suggested was that, uh, was that you watch the movie 13th. How many, how many of you saw the movie? If you haven't seen it, still watch the movie. It's, su it's super important if you, want to, if, you, if you want to come to a deeper understanding of kind of, of, of kind of the world that we're in. But in today's class, uh, it's going to be exclusively basically about one topic. And that topic is, what do we as Christians what do we as Christians do in the light of what we have discussed over the course of the past six weeks? And so it's going to begin with what I think is the most common response to that question, and that most common response is to evangelize. Now, I want you to gather into groups, and I want you to think of pros and cons of me answering that question of what do we do about issues of racial justice. Get into groups of like three or four, and discuss the pros and cons of that, being the, of that being the primary response to that question, to evangelize. Do you can gather? Yes, pros and cons mm -hmm. of evangelize. That's the answer to this question. Cons if there are any cons. There might not be any cons. Or there might not be any pros. I don't know. We'll just have to, we'll have to find out.
we'll discuss for another minute. Thoughts as we all gather back together? Any thoughts? Any discomfort with that exercise? Thoughts? I know you have some. I heard some. Pros. Pros of evangelize as a response. Always good to spread the word. Is that it? Okay, well, what are the... Okay, well, there's apparently there are a whole bunch of cons. What are these cons? Yeah. When I say when I say evangelize, I I mean um, if we if we focus our attention on spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, then these problems will fade. Yes. Interesting. So it sort of sounds like the way to bridge the gap between, you know, teach it with movies is, oh, just got to go give them Jesus. And it's also assumed that they don't want to do that. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, the response, uh, the, uh, 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 the response was that, well, here, you want to you say it one more time? And I'll, uh, I'll say it loud. Interesting. So, so, uh, so, uh, so, uh, so, Dell's response was that it sounds, it sounds like a contemporary take on, uh, on slaveholders' just justification of of slavery, and that like, well, what's what what's best for what's best for people is that they is that they have Jesus, and if they have Jesus, then all of these other you know all of these other things are going to go away. And so the issue is that the the issue is that the people who are the problem don't have Jesus, and once they have Jesus. Problem will go away. Yeah. We were talking about how it depends on whom you're saying that we're evangelizing. Okay. I mean, if, if, if the goal is just to go evangelize all of our, our black neighbors, well, then yeah, that's, it, you're taking away problems. <laughs> but the gospel breaks down barriers. So if you're evangelizing, by, and that, what that means is preaching the true gospel, mm -hmm. the true gospel can break down barriers just like it broke down barriers for the Jews and Gentiles. It can break down racial barriers. So if we're going to preach the true gospel, Good. 
Any other thoughts? Yes, Serena. So, let me talk about this for a second. So we all know, or at least you all, you all know that I, that, I, that, I, that, that I know that the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us is the only, I repeat, the only way to salvation. Now, the God that we serve demands perfection of his people. He demands holiness. And this is true as far back as, as, as Leviticus, where after establishing his covenant with his people, he says in in, in, Levit- in Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of, out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You should be set apart. Holy has two, two, has two, has two meanings in, in, in the scriptures. It means not only to be set apart, but also to be righteous. And Jesus repeats this in Matthew 5.43-48, where he says, you, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Do not, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so in order to... In order to solve that massive gulf between us and this standard of holiness, Christ took on flesh, he suffered and died, and was raised as our substitute, uniting those who believe in him with himself, taking their sin and giving them, giving us, his righteousness. And that's the message of the good news. But I I also want to maintain something, that the standards themselves have not changed. God didn't lower the bar, And to spur one another on to obedience to the Lord's commands, particularly to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, are imperatives of the gospel. And we in no way assume that just because you claim to be a Christian, or in fact are a Christian, that this means that you're going to act wisely. And yet, with the issue of race, we do assume that in the the phenomenon of what of what, or what some people like to call the miracle motif. And the miracle motif is this, this theologically rooted idea that as more individuals become Christians, social and personal problems will be solved automatically. It's this understanding that if we just, if we just basically make, if we just kind of evangelize and make more, make more Christians, the issue, then, then these issues will just fade. How do we solve violent crime? Well, we convert people because Christians don't commit violent crimes. What's the solution to uh, divorce? Well, we just make more Christians because Christians are less likely to get divorced. As one, non- as one non-denominational woman from the Midwest said, Christianity has the answers to everything if individuals just become Christians. That means, when it comes to the race, when it comes to the race question, that we see each other as God's children. How can we look down upon anybody that he created? Another comment. If everybody was a Christian, there wouldn't be a race problem. We'd all be the same. 
Now, I am, uh, I'm personally not sure when the issue of pride and its effects, which is what we're talking about when we, when we, when we talk about issues of, uh, issues of racism and racist discrimination. I'm not sure when that became something different from the way that we deal with every other sin. Here's what, here's what I mean. I think of the issue of lust, and I use this example as a man who knows a number of men who have experienced precisely this. If you struggle with lust before marriage, after you get married, you just become a married person who struggles with, who struggles with lust. There's no magic bullet for the daily struggle with sin. In the same vein, if you become a Christian as a, and all of us have this, but as a prideful, envious person who holds whether, whether, these are, whether, whether we're looking at conscious or unconscious biases, once you're, once you're converted, those things, are still, those things are still there, and they still have consequences. It's not, that, it's not that immediately upon professing faith, all those things go away and we're suddenly magically humble and, hum, humble and content and loving. The struggle against sin, the struggle against all sin, is a fight. And it's a fight that apart from the Holy Spirit, we will not win. But when many look at racism, they do so with the tools that we articulated last week. And so if society is just a group of individuals, then social change, that is for society to change, you just need to change more of those individuals. Baked into this assumption, though, is that if you become a Christian, then you will automatically act like one. I mean, that's just logical. No, that's not, that's not how that works, and we all know that. But along with a focus on, this, on, the, on, on the interpersonal, there's a, there's a mistrust of the structural. And so one, one, man, one man said this uh, as the main reason why the United States still has race issues. And he said, because, because we're dealing up here on the superficial level with programs and, and laws, it's only with Christianity that you can change people's hearts. You'll see people of all kinds of colors hugging and praying for each other. That's the only way to a solution. Now I want us to note in that response that uh, programs and laws are superficial and not a real solution. Um, as, a, as another quote, um, this, is what, uh, this is what Martin Luther King said when, when someone asked him about the law legislating morality. He said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. It applies not just to lynching, but it also applies to other, to other, to, to, to other, to other systems that maintain poverty and other, and other, and other, and other systems of, in, of, of injustice. Because James tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled is to care for, for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Christ, the law, and the prophets all instruct us to care for the poor. And this doesn't just mean giving money to random homeless people that we see, or volunteering at soup kitchens, though those things are good things. It also means thinking about and actively fighting insofar as we have the capacity, because not all of us have the time and the capacity to, to, do, to do kind of all of this stuff, but insofar as we have the time and the capacity to think about and actively fight structures that maintain poverty and injustice. As we talked about with redlining, 
The government, and this is just this is just historical fact, the government created and maintained these cycles of poverty. Sell these neighborhoods the, because 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 black people live here, we're going to discourage, we're going to discourage investment, we're going to keep people from getting loans, all those kinds of things. And so this created this creates this a number of these cycles. And if you watch 13th, you'll see even more of this happening um, uh, with, with incarceration. Why is it that we think that we ought not seek every opportunity to reverse those things, including a reshaping of that thing that caused these issues in the first place? And no, this is not denying the fact that some people are in their situation because, because they've made bad choices. But what I am doing is denying the assumption that creeps into all of our minds that all people in such a situation are there because of their choices. You know that's not true because that's not true about, that's not true about us. You know when you look at your own life that you're not where you are just because of you. You're where you are because of the grace of God and, and the people that he's placed around you to give you the opportunities that you've had. But the quickness with which we, dis, we dismiss that that's, that that's the reality of most people on this earth is indicative of our, of our, of our unwillingness to remember that about ourselves. And so this is what brings me to what is, I think, the most kind of the most fatal, uh, naive, and theologically dangerous flaw of the miracle motif, this idea that, well, if we just make more Christian, society's problems will fade. It assumes that conversion and discipleship are the same thing. It assumes that when someone is converted, their sin not only ceases to exist, but it also ceases to have consequences. If a man is an alcoholic and an abusive father, but comes to faith later in life, we rejoice at that conversion, but we also continue to weep at the damage that he has done to his family, because healing still needs to take place. If a woman has, has issues with envy before her conversion, after her conversion, those struggles may get even stronger now that she realizes, oh, that's what's going on here. Also, many of the individuals responsible for the laws and the structures that we're dealing with and attempting to battle claim to be Christians. They claim to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who was born, lived, suffered, and died, and was raised. And yet their practice suggested something quite contrary to the Lord who bought them. And so all of this is to say, and this is something I want to be very careful as I say it, because I think it's, very, I think it's important. Right belief is necessary, but not sufficient for right practice. The miracle motif suggests that we think that if you believe the right things, then you will do the right thing. And people have been saying this for a long time, and it's still wrong, as people say it. Because the link between belief and practice is a little more complicated than that. Because we have our beliefs that are, that are, that are, that are largely dictated to us by 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 scripture, but there are ways of thinking that, that inform the way that we link that belief to our practice. And this is why Christian discipleship is so important, because when someone is converted, they're babes in Christ, immature children who must grow up into adulthood, and that growing up requires focused, intentional training, because no sin goes away just with time or just by conversion or just by any other means. Because we, 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 when we think about sin, we're thinking about this thing that corrupted the cosmos. We're thinking of this thing that, that whose, whose ultimate defeat was secured by the death of the Son of God. 
And this is a huge deal. And so our fighting of it cannot be simplistic. And I hope that as we've gone through this class that we've seen that the intricacies of racialization in this country, subtle and also overt denials of the equal humanity of black, brown, Native American, Asian people, of, all, of, of, of a number of different peoples, that that, that that racialization seeps throughout the history of our nation. And we as believers in Christ cannot allow those powers and principalities to go unchallenged. And so I want to... Uh, I'm, I'm, it's, today's, today's going to be relatively short because this is, this is, like I said, my last, my last time. But I want to end with this. So what do we do? We have to, and this is, and, 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 and I think this is entirely in line with what, it, with what it means to be believers in union with Christ. It means that we battle discrimination in all of its forms, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in wherever the Lord has placed us. Angela Davis was, was very much right when she said that uh, in a society like ours, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist, which is the way that we treat sin in general. Uh, and as Christians, this cannot be less true. As Christians, we're not just not fans of murder. We are advocates of life. Early Christians weren't just opponents of infant exposure where you just, you don't want your kids, you just leave them out in the weather to die. It's not just that they went around saying, oh, I'm not a fan of that practice. Christians took children in and showed the world that they valued the people who they were constantly told not to value. The Westminster Larger, Larger, Larger Catechism, a wonderfully wise document in many ways, outlines not only the prohibitions of the Ten Commandments, but also the duties suggested by each one. And in its explanation of the commandment not to murder, it narrates the duties thus. The duties required in the, sixth, in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which lead to the unjust taking away of the life of any. Included in here is comforting the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. Now, one of the risks in this fight is burnout. It's a common, it's a, it's a common, it's a common issue. It's, it's been a common issue for every, almost every Christian that has seen that that has seen these issues and, and, and attempted to fight them. Especially because once you see, once you once you see the disparities and attempt to fight them, you're, you're going to find the difficulty of running up against 400 years of, of progress. 400 years of Satan getting smarter about subjugating people. 400 years of Satan getting smarter about deceiving the people, about deceiving church people into thinking that there are spheres of life that the scripture has nothing to say about, that, 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 that there are spheres of life that the scripture has nothing to say about. In the face of mounting opposition, I mean, Martin Luther King got burnt out, W.B. Du Bois got, cut, got burnt out, a lot of people get, get burnt out. But when I think about that, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, of the religious life of particularly slave communities, where you are living a life where nothing around you indicates that this is ever going to end. 
where, as far as you know, you and your children will be in this bondage for the rest of your lives. No one, <laughs> people, hoped, people hoped for emancipation, but no one ever thought that it was actually going to be a thing. But even in the midst, even in the midst of that, you have slave communities who believed in a, who believed in a God who had freed the people. He had freed the people of Israel, and so he loved because they because they proclaimed faith in him. They 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 deeply deeply believed he will free. He will set us free. Christ is coming. Christ is coming back to set us free. And that's one of the things that that's one of the things that helps guard us against burnout in this fight because we have a hope. We have a hope that cannot die. We know, know, know that Christ is coming back. And we know that he will set things right. And it is, and it is that that can sustain us even in the, even in the midst of the, of the natural discouragement that, that happens along this, along this path. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We hope to continue the work of carefully studying how best to preserve the lives of ourselves and our neighbors. So what does that include? It includes voting not merely with yourself in mind, but also with a view toward the least toward the poor, toward the widow, toward the orphan. And in fact, if you're not in that situation, it is probably more important that that person be lifted up than that you are. It means realizing that we are nonpartisan, not apolitical, because it's impossible for us to be apolitical unless we live in a cave somewhere. Do any of us live in caves? Then we're, then we're <laughs> I mean, unless you're a PhD student, in which case you probably do live in a cave. But what that means is, I mean, what, 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 what we're thinking about when I, use, when I use the word politics, I'm talking about the decisions you make having an effect on a group. Like I'm looking at um, what, what politics is, and there are a number of definitions, but what I'm talking about when I talk about politics is I'm looking at the exercise of power in groups. And the fact of the matter is, as a, and I, I, think, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but insofar as you are a voting citizen in this country, you have a responsibility that comes with that right. Every right comes with responsibilities. As I, my favorite, Spider-Man's my favorite superhero, and it is still true that with great power comes great responsibility. It means not just opposing abortion, but also supporting single mothers so that they're not under the impression that abortion is the only option. It means not just blaming black fathers, which is a deeply problematic move for a number of reasons, because in many cases that's a symptom and not, and, not the, and not the disease. For more on this, you can take a look at the Washington Post article, The Dangerous Myth of the Missing Black Father. But that narrative continues, that comfortable narrative of those people suffer because they make bad choices, which keeps us from getting into the weeds of really loving people and discerning their needs. It means interrogating the processes that, that you're a part of, whether it's hiring, whether it's consideration for promotions, whether it's your conversation, whether it's school choice, whether it's any other of, of the wide range of decisions that we make in our whirlwind of decisions. 
I ask that you think of these things, that you see them as necessary places to consider and apply Christian wisdom. And I ask that you engage not only your, your brothers, just your brothers and sisters, your elders, the entire church community on this topic, because we will all be the better, the stronger, and wiser for it. And no, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. The Christian life isn't easy. Now, it's easy in comparison to a life of condemnation. But in and of itself, and every Christian knows this, is that the fight is hard. But our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has given us weapons sufficient for the fight. And so I want to end with the words of benediction from Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Because we need to, we need to constantly be reminded that, yes, it's difficult. Yes, I'm uncomfortable. But the Lord has given us tools to fight. And that is a source of joy. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, May this God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.